0: This next one was a gift to my mother, Aaron's mother. It is called Mom's Killing Time. None of this happened, but it's a true story. And forget that I'm narrating. It's not about me. No man is an island. See the rhizomatic structure? There is no center. I was born first to a living woman and next to a dead cat. Prior to my inception, I was blind. Then I saw through a glass darkly, but now I see, face to face, etched lines, and the grace that the Bible wishes it knew. I have been baptized in dust. The doors of perception are cleansed, and I see things as they are. I've resolved to let be be final of seem. It starts and ends with dust. It couldn't be otherwise. The breath of life was always gritty love, exhaled by a rasping, broken God expelling the best of himself. Life's procession resembles the hourglass. At once a mass, but grounded dust, we fall violently, colliding through the aperture that exists solely for obstruction, solely as an impediment to self-actualization. Fragmented, we can fit through any orifice, and as we fall, we collect into a tidy mass of what we used to be. Dust we are, and unto dust we return. So it started with dust. On the day I was conceived, mom and dad snorted a heap of meth. They sat cross-legged around the single item of furniture in their dingy studio apartment an Ikea coffee table they had received as a wedding gift, and sniffed their way to ecstasy. Dad cut lines with the credit card carrying a debt that would remain unpaid, and mom inhaled swirling microcosmic maelstrom through a $1 bill. Brother slumbered in his crib. They were just kids. On the day I was conceived, a mountain shrank. As the mountain shrank, happy and mad got all mixed up. One minute, mom and dad were howling with laughter, gazing at twinkling eyes. The next minute, Dad sprinted across the room and put his head through the wall. Brother cried. You're lucky you didn't hit a stud, Mom said with a disinterest. Dad's visage was white powder and flecks of sheetrock and stringy brown hair. I wasn't there. They were a family before my big debut. The world still moved when my eyes were closed. I didn't project my family into existence either. I entered into something that already was. I invaded and reconfigured the structure, made them all realize that three was enough. Dad left after that. It is told that I was born to a mortal woman, but I'll always wonder about that. Mom showed resolve in the face of circumstances that would make most folks shit. She showed that resolve to Dad when he struck blows and splintered doors and tried to crush her with the washing machine. He ran away scared. He climbed inside a needle and became a chemist. He began combining gods' materials using glassware and fire. He tried to usurp Mom's creative force with the element of chemistry, but his progeny couldn't cultivate life like Mom's could. Dad thought he got away with something, but love isn't manufactured in a lab. There's nothing particularly entertaining about Mom's exploits. Her hero archetype doesn't accommodate her sacrifice. That's why Odysseus's name will continue to be sung for years to come, and Penelope Penelope, who really knew struggle, perseverance, and the pangs of loss, will continue to be overlooked. This is the outcome of of adventure and fame. Dad's life was a story, and Mom's was a part of mine. The women in Epics come into existence as they are interpolated by heroes. It's as if they materialize as they are discovered. They have no beginning or end. They are Axis Mundi, stripped of a center. They are points at the confluence of branches. We never really get to see them live except in the presence of man. But what is the sibyl of Cumi doing before Aeneas calls her into being? If she'll live for as many years as the grains of sand she held that fateful day when she forgot to ask for youth, she has to be doing something. She can't just be reading prophecies on scattered leaves. She must bear the mundane like the rest of the world. She must have to keep her cave tidy and put food on the table for someone, anyone, even if she doesn't require sustenance. She must have a family to care for. She must require affection. She must miss someone. She must know the throes of life. And what was mom doing absent her hero? The boy watched mom arrange fallen leaves into a message in the dirt. She traced the message with delicate steps, crushing them into a red, yellow, and orange powder. The message read, ephemerality will haunt us until our last days. But dead, we will live forever. Standing abreast, centered on the message, mom and the boy clasped hands. A gust came singing through the naked oaks and maples, casting the message into oblivion. The boy imagined his mother on her deathbed. He sits hunched over beside her bed in a glowing white room. Brother is there. The men have long, dark beards like icicles clinging pendulously to their jaws. They spit brown gulps of tobacco on the fresh white floor. Nobody speaks. Mom isn't ill. She's dying because the count on her grain of sand has nearly depleted. She draws wheezing breaths. Her flesh sags. Her skin is a matrix of etched lines too myriad even for a gypsy palm reader to decipher. Her story is inscribed on the faces of her boys. Their eyes tell her story. I wish you boys wouldn't chew, Mom says, and a great rupture follows. She has cracked mud in the Sonoran Desert. Her body collapses into infinitesimal particles. The men's eyes remain fixed on the bed. They spit tobacco on the floor. Suddenly, the boy is in an hourglass, watching the sand trickle down through the aperture. He says, Time is the illusion of linearity, and now I'm enveloped by it. The sand is up to his neck when the hourglass flips, distorting all that he thinks he knows. The boy remembers when he found Sebastian in the crack in Nanny's house. The cat was all white bones and big, black, empty orbital sockets. He was compressed from seasons of swelling and shrinking wood. The boy wanted to free him from his open casket, but couldn't reach. Mom found him poking at Sebastian with a stick one day. She crept up behind him and placed her hand on his shoulders. If the builders of this house knew their creation would bound that cat to suffering, would they have done otherwise, she said. The boy glanced over his shoulder, stick in hand. We have to get it out, Mom. We have to bury it so it can go to heaven. Okay, sweetie. That night, they went to the outpost and filled three one-gallon milk jugs with gasoline. They returned to nanny's and waited until the family fell asleep in the house. Then they crept on tiptoes from room to room, splashing gas on the carpets and curtains. The boy set down his jug when he entered Michael's room. Fixated, he watched the rise and fall of Michael's chest as he lay asleep on his back. He soon lost himself to the hypnotic rhythm. Mom found the boy on the bed with Michael's nose pinched between his thumb and finger and mouth covered by his palm. She swept him up in her arms and glided into the living room. We'll see if he can breathe when we burn the oxygen out of the room, she said. He'll be breathing wraiths. They emptied the remainder of their jugs and went outside. Outside, Mom lit a smoke and gave the boy a home run pie. They lit long white candlesticks set in a candelabra Mom lifted from the house. Though the flickering of the candlelight made the shadows of Mom's face appear protean, like an ink blot alive, she never scared the boy. He gazed up at her, fascinated by her changing forms. The radius of light encircling them cast a slant of light on Sebastian, drawing him into the tableau. Mom noticed and asked the boy if he wanted to say any words. The boy clasped his hands together and cleared his throat. Sebastian became trapped in this divide because it should never have been. He entered life without a life to give consent and found himself in a house divided. The builders didn't know when they built the house that the walls would incubate in their womb a family infectious with strife. The fracture from that strife entered into a cat whose writhing was the impetus to his death. The more he struggled, the tighter friction held him. Tonight we free Sebastian. We pass him through the fire into immortality. The boy gazed up at Mom for recognition. Mom took a long drag on her smoke and winked at the boy. Stand back, she said. Mom sent the candelabra on the front porch, knocked it over with her foot, and scurried over to the boy. The flame ignited the web of gas soaked through the house. Soon the whole house was ablaze with a shifting scene of spectral fire set against the azure night sky. They watched the dancing light, heard the singing screams, the mewling. Flames blocked points of egress, so the only option was to burn. The people burning in there weren't committed to ash, though, because they weren't made from dust. They dissolved into feuded putrescence. Michael melted into an oozing glob of brimstone and shit. Mom held the boy close and watched the flames engulf Sebastian. They licked the bones until cremation reconstituted him into something finer. Mom's lank brown hair wavered in the vortex generated by the fire. When the house collapsed into ash and rubble, the dust whirled like a Samoom. Afterward, Mom dipped her fingers in the ash and painted streaks across the boy's face. He followed her as she floated wraith-like above the rubble, collecting a handful of Sebastian's incinerated bones. I will show you hope in a handful of dust, she said. It's all so clear in retrospect, but most of that never happened. Sebastian is a bullshit cliche cat name. That should have been a dead giveaway. Get it? My memories are ethereal frameworks constructed on moving water They are necessarily fictionalized because I am absent from the events at the time that they transpired I can refi memories through narrative though I can create dead cats and infernos that hold more truth than lived experience But this story isn't about me If a narrative unfolds in first, second, and third-person points of view, you have to wonder about who's narrating. I find myself wondering, too. There must have been a day when I stopped dwelling on what was or what seemed to be and instead channeled my focus onto what is. What is isn't always so apparent, but it's all we have. All those memories, Mom, we burn them up. Let B be final of scene.